Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Beer Ladies podcast. We are in spooky season, as you all know. It is one of our favorite seasons here at the Beer Ladies podcast. And um, if you're watching on video, you might even spot a T-shirt or a pumpkin or a, a something, you know, something along the way. <laughs> Everybody's got got some sort of um, aspect of themselves dressed up, <laughs> and everyone's now showing T-shirts and things. So, welcome to to our spooky season series, the whole of October, and today. We are talking about alewives and demons. Now, truth be told, I don't know much about this at all. So I'm going to learn along with everybody else. Um, I am Tandy and I'm joined today by Lisa, Carolyn and Christina. Maybe just shout out hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Fabulous. And so, yeah, we're going to talk about alewives and demons. This is a a literary trope. It's something that's been quite prominent in artwork, whether it's paintings, carvings, stories. Um, and, and we're going to focus today on England specifically, so not everywhere across the world. And we are going to heavily rely on Christina and Lisa to tell us all about it and tell us why there is this association between, let's say, evil and, and alewives. I mean, honestly, the alewives were the people that made beer lads. Like, why are we, why are we demonizing them? All right. Well, let's before we get into that, let's do a very quick reminder, please, to um, share this around, guys. Share, share our podcast with your friends. That's the the best thing you can do for the podcast at the moment, and um, and that you know also implies um, subscribing if you haven't already. Please um, hit that subscribe button, whether it's on YouTube or your podcast player, and um, give us a like, give us a comment, talk to us on Twitter. We're all there. We're either at Beer Ladies Pod or Beer Ladies Podcast on any of the socials. So feel free to find us. We're also at Beer Ladies Podcast at gmail.com for any queries or suggestions. Okay, let's, uh, let's, let's get spooky season and alewives and demons underway and let's go around the table and say, what are we drinking? Carolyn, what have you got today? Uh, St. Elmo's Gozer. So it's a Goza style Ooh. one. It's pretty good. Do you, have a, do you have a can or something to show the viewers on YouTube? I do in my fridge. Oh. <laughs> so I have to go get it because I only because it's a it's the canned growler, so I only poured half, gotcha. half of it. Uh, we're good. <laughs> okay, yeah. okay, cool. And who's the brewery? 
St. Elmo's. Oh, St. Elmo's. Oh, they're the actual brewery. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Is it delicious? Yes, it's good. Oh, lovely. I bought it a couple weeks ago, so it's great. Oh, nice. Lisa, what have you got today? I have the Trouble Brewing Pumpkin Brew, so seasonally (laughs) appropriate. Not something that medieval alewives would have had in England for obvious reasons, but... Uh, always good to, to get a pumpkin beer this time of year. We, we'll chat on another podcast about that and how hard they are to find here in Ireland. But uh, th- that aside, it is lovely this year, so highly recommend it. And my understanding is there's not a ton of it out there. So if you guys see it here and you're in Ireland, I'll pick one mm. up. How does it compare to last year's one? It's actually, uh, I would say it's pretty similar to last year's. It, it's it's light, it's refreshing. It's definitely not overwhelming in terms of the of the sort of pumpkiny spices so it's really pleasant some i find some are very unbalanced this is not unbalanced very nice mm. so it's quite similar to last year though lovely christina what you got today friend i'm drinking a third barrel painted black mm. which Ooh. seems appropriate for the season um and also i just like black ipas mm. here for so many reasons um so yeah really this is my first sip so i'll let you know Lovely. And I've got something of the opposite. Uh, I don't know why I chose this, but it just felt like I wanted this beer. I have got a Seeking Sunshine (laughs) Pale Ale from Dead Center Brewery. And maybe in a way it's something like um, looking for the good in everything, you know, seeking -hmm. seeking a bit of sun, seeking a bit of happiness. It also, I'm wearing, it's a, I'm wearing a t-shirt that says it's, uh, what's it? It's a pale ale kind of day. So clearly it was a pale ale kind of day today with our seeking sunshine. All righty. Well, cheers, everybody. It's lovely to, lovely to be back, back in, uh, back talking to friends over the ears of, uh, of everybody else who's listening. Okay. So Christina, help us out here, man. Like <laughs> why is there, or what is the, the connection between demons or hell or evil and alewives? Where on earth does this come from? Right. So I'm, I'm going to start by talking about um, how this manifests in art. And then um, Lisa's going to chime in with some literary stuff. And then I'm going to talk about some literary stuff. And then we're going to put this in the broader context as where it came from and what it means and, and that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, let's, let's start with, with the artwork. Um, So there's a, there's St. Lawrence's church in Ludlow in England, and it was founded originally in the 11th century um, by the Normans when they came over, (laughs) came over, that's an understatement, invaded. (laughs) Um, And so it's been rebuilt uh, several times. Um, So among the the, the vaulted ceilings and the stained glass and and all of this, this wonderful, this big church, there are 28 misericords. and these misericords are, they're hinged chairs, they're mercy seats. Um, they're supposed to aid uh, a person if they're praying for like a long time. So that's kind of the purpose. Have a, have a wee sit mm. while you're in the middle of prayer. And there's 28 of these and they were built or created, I should say, between 1425 and 1447. The, because there's even 28 of them is just really kind of impressive. Um, but the whole we care um, is that there are intricate depictions sort of carved in the underseat of the chair. And for our purposes, one of them is an otherwise naked alewife. And she has um, this elaborate sort of horned headdress and she's brandishing, she's got this ale mug with her and she's being dragged off to hell with a, um, bagpipe wielding demon 
Although it kind of looks like she's having a really good time. And that's, <laughs> that's, that's something that we'll kind of see through the we'll artwork yeah, that they that. seem, it seems to be like where the party is. Um, so I, I don't really know exactly what they were going for with that. Um, but like, it's not like, this is not the only thing. So for example, there's a Norwich cathedral. We have another naked alewife and she's on a wheelbarrow with, or she's with a demon and he's got a wheelbarrow and they're carrying more souls off to hell. And she, she looks again, quite happy, you know, like, <laughs> woo! so like, so she's, she's not, let's say the victim of the devil. She's siding with him in whatever the endeavor yeah, is maybe in league with yeah yeah okay. she looks like she looks like she's having a good time and, and this is this is not even just in carvings these are carvings there's also paintings they have doom um or last judgment paintings um one is at the holy trinity church in coventry england um a wall painting at saint edmund's um and one at saint beckett church in salisbury um so she the, the alewife in hell sort of appears over and over and over and over again and they they and I've talked about this before in um what were actual depictions of alewives in the medieval period and it's not you know the 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 modern witch hat but they do kind of have elaborate headdresses and often um sort of like the devil snare so like maleficent that's mm-hmm. kind of what we're going with holding a tankard of ale um and so, for example, Miriam Gill, who studied that she's an expert in medieval wall paintings and art, she argued that this design um, was was to make quite clear the sins of the alewife. So they're portrayed as uh, liars and thieves who sold ale in false measures. Um, they were lustful creatures as seen in their nudity, and their very trade inspired the deadly sin of gluttony. So this is kind of the intention that hmm. like 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 you guys were saying oh, we're quite happy in our sinful ways. We're happy to be in hell. We're, you know, we're not good people by whatever the misogynistic, you know, patriarchal ideologies were at the time. But what was the, why why was the alewife, I guess, seen as mistrustful or dishonest or whatever the case is? I mean, surely these are the people that were kind of doing a service to society by providing, by providing the ale. Like you'd think that these people would be revered. Right. And so, no, <laughs> not at all. Um, so we'll talk about that a little bit more when we talk cool. about like literary portrayals, but just to kind of give an overview that in the medieval period, um, alewives were maligned quite a bit. Um, viewed as like, like uh, I had just said, cheating their customers, giving false portions, these sorts of things. Um, that's not to say this wasn't true. We, <laughs> we, um, we do have examples. Um, Judith Bennett did a, an amazing, of course, study of alewives in, in medieval and early modern England. And it was probably common to cheat, but it probably wasn't intentional um, because they had they had put down like very strict uh, portions as to as to what you could serve. And if you're sort of not a professional alewife, so like a lot of alewives were sort of by industrial or not commercial or, you know, I actually have some extra ale, so I'm just going to go ahead and sell that to my neighbor kind of a deal. You might not have the proper portions. And so you might be cheating your customers without realizing it 
So that can be part of the anxiety around this. But we do know that some just completely cheated on purpose. Um, So (laughs) Judith Bennett found an example of a Brewster named Alice, who in 1364, she cheated her customers by selling them ridiculously false amounts of ale. And she added one and a half inches of pitch to the bottom of an unsealed quart measure, thus making them, quote, so severely false that even her six quarts didn't add up to a gallon. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, people are cheating. Um, But this is not just a phenomenon for women. So absolutely. The thing to be keep in mind is that medieval people and early modern people were anxious not only about cheating alewives, but cheating bakers, millers. They all were subjected to this anxiety, this association with sin, this um, fear of cheating. And the only difference is that alewives in particularly also had a lovely blend of misogyny to go along with their um, with with the society's anxiety about cheating and gluttony and these sorts of things. But millers are associated very strongly with this. Um, there's a quote about something to the extent of, oh, is it bakers or millers should build their, their, um, their assembly at the pillory because they're just going to end up there anyway. <laughs> so, so there's, there's definitely just this overall anxiety about it. It just happens that there's also this, this thread of misogyny. Of course, this thread of misogyny goes through the entire culture. So that inevitably manifests in this anxiety for alewives. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's so important that you're right. It's absolutely both. And, and even, I mean, you can go back to Chaucer. I mean, the Miller's Tale, you know, of course he's a dodgy guy and it's funny. I think that's the thing that is hard to, to see those threads of too, is a lot of these, there is humor mixed in, whether it's, you know, sort of misogynistic humor, which a lot of it is, or it's just sort of professional humor. And it's obviously hard to tell at this, you know, at this distance, if you like, and it's certainly not always the case, but a lot of times these are kind of, you know, played for comedy, if you like, not as much in the art, but certainly when you get to some of the literary stuff, and again, not just for the alewives, but for the millers, the bakers, you know, all of these people who society needs to function, they're, you know, are are they kind of getting, uh, getting one over on everyone? A lot of them probably are, so... Yeah, I, I, I found my quote. It's John Lydgate's poem, putting put thieving millers and bakers in the pillory. So yeah, he's very clear on this. And he said to put that millers and bakers should build their guild chapel under the pillory as so many members will end up there at some point anyway. Um, yeah. But I suppose we've, we've always had, um, let's say, associations with professions, right? I mean, to this day, you know, ask, ask anybody what their... Um, what their stigma is about a lawyer and you're going to hear it. Lawyers are sharks. Lawyers will take you for whatever money you've got, you know, all of these things. So I suppose it was kind of the same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and again, you get it in, you know, Pierce Plowman, you get it in Chaucer, you get it. We'll we'll talk a little bit more about some of the the mystery play stuff, but you know, it's all there and it's all sort of tied to these professional stereotypes. And again, there's usually some kind of kernel of truth to, to some of these. So it's, uh, Sometimes, mm. but you know, sometimes it's played for laughs and sometimes uh, not so much. So. <laughs> That's the thing I would, I would caution against um, 
considering or uh, assuming how much this actually plays out in lived reality because yeah. the 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 people that are writing these things or carving things in the church are different people than you know your everyday person and that this might not actually reflect a widespread idea in mainstream culture this might be a church thing because you know a lot of these are in the church so the church might have thought this but your normal everyday people would have been like well that's just edna down the street and she's fine so we're not worried <laughs> about her do you know what i mean because you know that there's there's a very strong idea of, you know, reputation and these sorts of things. And so, you know, it depends on that sort of thing and where your position in the community and, and these sorts of things and people would trust you, not trust you depends on if it's a small, you know, anyway, the whole point of this is I would caution against assuming that this means that in, you know, society every day, people are like, Ooh, that's an ale wife. Right away. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, is what happens is that leads to now then the falsehood that we have that, you know, alewives are rounded up as witches in England. And then, you know, that's where we get them, which is just not true. So you have to really be careful that just because something manifests in literary tales doesn't mean that it's representative of lived reality. It might just be a literary trope. It might just be these sorts of things. Um, so I would just, I would just caution about that. Exactly. And we're only seeing what we have. We know that there could have been many, many other things that we just don't have evidence for left you know you know people didn't necessarily write down oh you, you know Bertha down the road she did a great job we're going to be like whoo thumbs up great ale although you do get that later in kind of the early modern period where you do have songs or you know sort of mother Watkins ale you know things like this where you are praising an individual ale wife although again that's that's really later than the period we're, we're talking about and it's kind of a more again kind of a more jocular more comedic take on these things so in that when you're kind of missing the the dark side and only getting this sort of what what's left the sort of comedic shell if you like yeah for sure for sure and 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 equally it doesn't mean that there there wasn't some kind of negative strand in society we just have to be really careful with this and put it in context but it is not uncommon which makes you think that it is at least a common literary trope and so to sort of I guess, kick off the literary examples. Um, I can talk about the telling of Eleanor Rumming because that's perhaps one of the most famous um, poems about an alewife that's a quite negative. So this was written in the early modern period. So 1517 by John Skelton. And Skelton, of course, was quite misogynistic. And um, you can really see that in this poem. Um, so she, she, she brewed ale. She was an alewife. Um, and uh skeleton just slates her like it he just starts as he means to go on and she's she's just this the most terrible person ever um and and that's that's interesting but i think what the associations that we kind of want to talk about today are um the idea that she might have made potions with her ale um she blended hen's droppings with the ale on purpose to create a sort of tonic and i'll read this sort of quote here um when i began to brew and i have found it to be true drink now while it is new and ye may it brook it shall make you look younger than ye be two years or three for ye may prove it by me um, and so rumming is talking here about blending a specific sort of potion or to make the drinker appear younger. And apparently it works so well that she declared she makes her husband foolish when they kiss and play and lust and liking. Mm -hmm. Um, and after their intercourse, she states that they then sweetly we lie lies two pigs in a sty. Um, so again, Skelton is sort of reiterating 
sort of what he he believes to be his illusions of lewdness and his complete disgust of her. Um, but the the sort of things that get a little bit more sinister um, is that he suggests that quote the devil and she may be sibs, so she might be kin to the devil himself. As in um, siblings, sibs, yeah, siblings. Okay, so so that she might be kin to the devil. Um, and there's also illusions that she might be accepting a payment from a woman who might have been a witch. But I think this is kind of clear that she's not the witch, but she's associated perhaps with the witch, um, and she's associated with the devil. And so this. Um, and she she also is believed to accept all kinds of payments, including wedding rings and rosary beads. So we do kind of see this sort of very sinful alewife who is kind of, you know, very much mirroring that those depictions in those churches of associated with the devil. She's taking rosary beads as payment. That is just unacceptable. She might know a witch like, ooh, you know, she's not the witch, but she might know one, which is really, you know, so these these kinds of ideas. And there, there's an argument that this might have been based on a based on an actual woman who was brewing at the time. But scholars have are not a uh, 100 percent. There's not a there's a bit of contention about that, but it is possible that she was she was based on an, on an actual person that Skelton might have encountered in, in his life. Um, whether she was actually like that is probably not true at all. You know, it, maybe she maybe he went to her alehouse and, and just decided that he didn't like her or he didn't like her ale or she just didn't like him or who knows. Right. Like this is all pure conjecture. Um but yeah, so th- there is this kind of a potential association with with hell and the devil and, and demons and, and this kind of thing. But again, this does not manifest into mass accusations of alewives, which mm-hmm. is. I, I looked at that poem and it is so long. I was just like, please give me the TLDR because I can't, I can't be asked. <laughs> Oh, definitely. Well, maybe maybe a good segue. I, I will do the TLDR on the, the Chester mystery plays, which, mm. uh, again, have what's really kind of a comedic uh, take on the sort of naughty alewife going to hell uh, stereotype. But uh, I'll give people a little bit of context uh, on the assumption that not, not everyone is super au fait with medieval mystery plays although again they're still done all over Europe you know you have a lot of them in Germany the York mystery plays might be the more famous ones in England but the ones we're going to talk about right now are the Chester mystery plays so these go back to the 14th century more or less and they're they're again they're kind of additive more and more kind of get added on over time they were originally performed by monks but then the city guilds begin to bring begin to sort of take that on and either sponsor or do a lot of the performances over time and again they're still performed now I think the next one for the Chester mystery plays should be I want to say 2024 but we'll see where they get to with COVID and all of that good stuff but uh, the one we're going to talk about, and again, there are many, many, many plays that would be done over a period of weeks, days, you know, et cetera, is The Harrowing of Hell. But what's interesting is that this one, the city guild responsible for this one, is the cooks, tapsters, ostlers, and innkeepers. So they're the ones putting on their own show kind of about how terrible they are, which, you know, at least they kind of can, can laugh at themselves. But I'm going to uh, share a little bit about the alewife, um, who is just listed as Moulier, so woman. Uh, in this one. Um, And I'm not going to read the whole thing because it goes on and on, but a little clip here I think you'll enjoy. So, my cups I sold at my pleasure, deceiving many a creature, though my ale were not. And when I was a brewer long, with hops I made my ale strong. So again, misunderstanding of the brewing process. We're going to 
call that out right now to the authors of the Chester plays, but <laughs> ashes and herbs, I blend among and marred so good malt. So we don't like putting in any of these adjuncts, adjuncts bad. So even back then people are like, mm, they're putting things in beer. I, I don't like it. It's bad. So again, the, the pumpkin beer, they would not be, uh, not be on board <laughs> with, but, but I'm going to sort of skip ahead to uh, the other characters, Satanus. Uh, Secundus Demon and Tertius Demon. So again, these guys are just all off. But uh, Satanus says, Welcome, dear darling, to us all three. Though Jesus be gone with our money, ye shall thou abide here still with me in pain without end. But then the second demon says, Welcome, dear lady, I shall be wed for many a heaven and drunken head. Cause of thy ale were brought to bed far worse than any beast. So she, you know, her ale was too strong and made people super drunk, but then <laughs> Perseus demon, and here's where it gets good. So we're, we're in hell, you know, it's all happening. He says, welcome dear daughter to endless ball using cards, dice and cups small with many false oaths to sell thy ale. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend, but what won't change needing health insurance. United healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Now thou shall have a feast. And you're like, wait, okay, this isn't so bad. This sounds pretty great that you get to go down and have all these parties and play cards, dice. You've got, okay, you've got little cups. That's, that's kind of a pain. Going to have to refill, but... And that is the end of that particular play where she gets dragged off to hell for making beer that is too strong. Maybe it's got some extra stuff in it. Uh, although she is also cheating people, but then she gets to go have this endless party. So again, it's, it's definitely in a comedic, you know, sort of uh, in a comedic uh, style. This particular play is probably a little later. It might even be as late as the 16th century, but it may be more like, you know, late 14th, early 15th, and then just kept getting kind of 
revise, revise. But again, it's it's the same idea of the cheating alewife is the one who's, you know, going to go pay the price. But it, it sounds pretty great, really. <laughs> look at it. So all good. Do we know why the monks started the plays? Like, I'm just curious. Like, do we know why they were the, yeah. It's, it's an interesting question because when you hear this, this kind of thing, and, and you'll also get these sort of ideas of sort of other like Christian representative art, it'll be like, oh, to make sure that the common people could learn the gospel, et cetera. But when you start to unpack some of that, it's not necessarily true. It, it might've been that that's what they got kind of funding to do. So it's almost like they could reach out to the, you know, effectively the archdiocese and be like, we're gonna do a thing to teach the locals. But actually that was just how they, got extra money to go and kind of yeah. live it up so okay it maybe somewhere in between but it's it's an interesting question and it comes up um you know again especially in kind of um monumental art whether it's like redoing a cathedral or um you know this kind of play so that they could kind of get away with a lot with uh, kind of under the the heading of uh we're teaching the common people stuff and they just kind of get a blank check so all good. <laughs> well there you go yeah. All this ale we're drinking is just research. Yeah. <laughs> the money was just resting in their accounts. It was all mm-hmm. it was all fine. <laughs> I just think it's funny that it's the monks doing this. Like, I don't know. Oh yeah. Yeah. And and again, over time they start to recruit other people. It's like, how did that happen? Were they friends yeah. or was it like a you know, like a war going on? Yeah. In an exchange of goods. Maybe. Maybe, yeah. It's probably, it's probably not at all related, but it, I mean, surely the monks also just wanted to stamp out their competition, you know, because they were I, also going to be. brew at some stage. Absolutely. Yeah, it, yeah, it sort of depends on, you know, because a lot of monks just brewed for their you know, for their community. So they weren't necessarily selling it outside of their community. Um, and you can kind of tell that by the records, at least in certain places, you know, this is really, really varied and, and, and whatever, but like, um, so. So it just really depends, very context specific. But, you know, a lot of them were just brewing for in the community or if they were brewing for outside of the community, it wasn't necessarily for sale. Like, so, for example, in Ireland, we have St. Bridget who is brewing and she wants to brew for the 17 churches. And this is for Easter coming up. And it doesn't seem like it's necessarily for sale, but it's part of like sort of the festivities. And so might have been part of just the ale feast that was going on because we have a culture with um, of hosting and like the importance of hosting people. And um, that's just part of like being a good host is providing ale and food and these things for your festivities um whether that was charged um at certain places in certain times you know but in ireland in particular there's a really strong hosting culture um and the importance of your host providing sort of ale and and food and stuff like that so you know it might be competition but it it, it might just be you know for fun and games um because, yeah, like a lot of monks were just brewing for their community and people that visited their community mm. and these these sorts of things. The depictions of alewives and 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 whatnot. Um, yeah. And, and ale, we should be we should be clear that, you know, in in. In order to control this idea or control alewives and things like that, they brought in things like ale tasters, people that came around and tasted their ale and made sure that like, I mean, the the clue is in the name, ale tasters, (laughs) and made sure that they were following the rules and regulations that were that were set forth. Um, But of course, not all women were okay with this. Um, And again, I highly recommend Judith Bennett's book. She talks about this. you know, really in depth, but um, I think probably like two of my favorite examples from Judith Bennett's book is um, 
So there's the story of Jillian, who was the wife of Richard Picard, and that's really the the only reference we have to her. But in 1275, apparently ale tasters came to her household in Wakefield Manor and she refused to comply with them. And she was say she said she was going to brew her ale as she liked it. And quote, she cared not at all about the orders of the bailiffs or even the Earl. So Jillian was going to do her own thing. And then later, the Brewsters of Exeter in 1317 collectively protested against what they felt were unfair prices and regulations, and they just stopped selling their ale entirely. They just completely protested and just stopped. So to be clear, they kept trying to bring in more and more regulations and really strict regulations, but not everybody complied with them. And women did try within the, you know, limited, perhaps limited power that they had to basically say, yeah, you know what? I'm going to do what I want. (laughs) Um, How this, how this went down for them is, is another, you know, thing, but it's, it's interesting to see that every, you know, some people were just like, yeah, no, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And it's interesting to go back to, to Eleanor Rumming too, because while we've got this this terrible screed about how she's the worst, and you know, and if you look at pictures of her, and we'll, we'll link some of these in our socials uh um when we put this episode up, but at the same time, people thought her ale was really good, or at least other people did. So it's interesting that, you know, her it was meant to taste good, but you know, you're your man over here was like, but uh, uh, ladies, uh. like literally that's kind of his argument, but other people are like, her ale's really good. So it's, <laughs> you know, again, what, what is the reputation? Is it personal? Is it, you know, just sounds sour, people? honestly. I mean, he sounds like the worst because he was um, what poet laureate to Henry VIII. So again, not, not a guy super progressive when it comes to the, the ladies uh, by any means, but uh I guess, you, you know, you, you have to write what, uh, what the boss is looking for to an extent, or, you know, you just hire people who are also gross. So, well, yeah. And, and if, okay. And so if, if, if. the turning of Eleanor running is based on Alianora Roming, who, if, uh, yes. ran, ran, who had a pub called the running horse in uh, Leatherhead in Surrey beside, uh, beside one of the really nice, beautiful rivers, beautiful pub. It still exists. So she wins. Um, if this, if this was actually about her, um, and that's the pub and, and that's whatever. But again, like this is quite contentious. Um, but you know, if, if that's the case, then, you know, wow, she's still going. So I think that's pretty cool. Next time I'm in Surrey, I'm going there. Oh, I, I, I'm absolutely, if I can get there, I'm going. I'm so excited. They probably have Cascale people. They probably have Cascale. And we're, we're all like waiting, waiting for it to come back here. But <sighs> um, And we do know that Alianora herself, she was fined two shillings for selling two expensive ale and two smoke measures in mm. 1525. Um, but like this fine was so small it was equivalent to less than a gallon of her own ale so it's not really and that's that's the other thing when we are looking at fines for for cheating alewives and this is the case in england and ireland and other places they're usually quite small they're and they're not because this was something that people understood was probably just going to happen and after a certain amount of fine you were meant to get further and further and up into eventually to physical punishment but whether it actually ever escalated to that point is beyond because you know just because the the laws are prescriptive in a lot of cases where it's like okay we're going to say this but how it was actually applied is a you know 
it could be, you know, you have John who's the bailiff and, you know, Marjorie, who's this. And he's like, Marjorie, you're cheating again. And she's like, well, I didn't do it on purpose. And he's like, I can't be bothered. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, now, I mean, besides, besides that one particular poem, do we know of any real links between any depictions, whether in art or literature, and actual alewives, um, or is it is it a, is it just a trope, or just a stereotype, and something that was prevalent? So, do we know if alewives are actually hanging out with demons? No. <laughs> <laughs> no well, I suppose I suppose that is like a bloody. That's the right question, isn't we it? We see our previous episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Haunted <laughs> pubs. <laughs> You know, I don't know about that. I'm, I'm actually, I'm going to talk about this um, on Brachiatrix, but I have found a, 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 a story about a, this is not a, this is not a literary story. Well, it might not be true, but apparently th- this um, religious, religious guy was talking to uh, one of the members of his constituency and this guy apparently fled Scotland to Ireland because the devil kept appearing to him. Oh. Um, particularly in the alehouse. So the devil was showing up in the alehouse or outside the alehouse or near the alehouse. And so there's sort of this association with the devil in the alehouse. And I'll, I'll talk about this story a bit more, but yeah. So there, there's possibly devils appearing in alehouses. Um, yeah. So maybe, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but maybe maybe beer was just slightly hallucinogenic back in the day. Well, yeah, I mean, if you drink enough of it, yeah, and if you're throwing in, you know, all your wormwood and all the other things, you know, things can get things can get a little weird, you know. So, <laughs> uh, so you never know. They could have thought they were. Um, and it's a, you know, it it's an interesting question because it's the same thing with like uh, some of the women who were arrested for witchcraft actually really thought that they were flying to meet demons at night. Like they really thought this. Um, they were drinking so- the beer <laughs> or something, maybe or something, or yeah. something. <laughs> yeah, or you know, you you lick the wrong mushroom when you're out and about, and yeah, you know, yeah. who knows? Well, those pesky mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. So, so this is a, um, let's say as a stereotype or a trope, did it have any lasting effects on society or the way that, that, that history eventually evolved? Well, I would say the really long lasting effect is the myth that won't die mm. about um, alewives in England um, being like mass hunted as witches, um, which has then been extrapolated out that like alewives in Europe, medieval Europe, were somehow hunted as um, witches, which just and and were like en masse executed or tortured or imprisoned yeah. um, because they were brewing ale and therefore that was associated with witchcraft and so therefore which is just not true like there's just there's no truth to this and we've covered that like ad nauseum at this point um, but I would say that's really really probably one of the really big sticking points is there's this association and so then people you know say oh well that makes this look like this might make sense and I totally understand it it seems like it could fit like, it seems like those things could fit. Oh, the alewife is associated with, with demons. Oh, and this is the thing. But that's because of the, 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 the fact that she's selling something that could be associated with gluttony, the fact that she might be cheating her customers. Mm. It's not because brewing ale itself is somehow demonic or evil. It's because, and then she, also she's a woman. So she's, you know, more associated with sin because misogyny, patriarchy, blah, blah, blah. Right? So 
those are sort of the reasons. And then people are like, okay, so this, this, this other thing, this, they were mass accused of witchcraft. Okay. So that makes sense. But the two just don't fit. Yeah. And we, we know that because the primary sources seem to indicate that. Now, that is not to say that individual women who were maybe in competition with men might not have been accused because we do know that men did use accusations to push um, women out of competition. One woman was accused of leprosy. The other, uh, a man also spread rumors about a woman and her business to both to push um, alewives out of brewing. So it is possible, but that's on a small individual basis. And that's just in England. Um, and also like things like most of the witchcraft trials don't start until the early modern period. Yeah. Um, we have, you know, in some here and there, like there's one or two, you know, small amounts of things, but it's really more of an early modern phenomenon. Um, but yeah, the moral of the story is those two things don't connect. Um, but I do understand why people would think that they do, but they don't. Mm. Yep. Yeah. That's that sounds cool. I mean, look, if if any of these um, paintings or carvings are to go by, um, it it just sounds like the alewives won in the end anyway. Here, here, yeah, they're living their best lives down with their demon friends. I mean, and if nothing else, like their demon friends can be making an amazing barbecue, and you know, they're having yeah. a great time. Well, the thing that I the thing that I find funny is St. Bridget's version of heaven and like St. Bridget's Ale Feast is that it's a giant lake of beer for everyone to drink for all eternity. And that doesn't sound too far off from these depictions of hell. So I'm really trying to figure out what exactly is the difference between heaven and hell, except that maybe heaven doesn't have a portion control. So you can just like stick a straw and keep drinking, whereas like hell apparently has these small cups, Little which cups. make it keep getting yeah. like just I mean, I, I can live with that. Like, that's fine. Imagine, imagine a world where your biggest problem is that your cup is too small to satisfy your thirst. Like, but you have an endless supply. Like, it, I, these are not problems, guys. No, they're really not problems. So I don't understand. And like, like we're saying, the alewives always look so happy. They're just big, smart, you know, woohoo, off to hell I go. Yay. And you're kind of like, that is supposed to be a deterrent because that, that looks like a good time. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I know we, we only really focused on England here, but were there or are there any examples of the same kind of trope from around the world? Well, yeah, I can definitely tell you that that, that it exists in Ireland um, mm. and I cover it. And I will, will cover it and I do cover it. And you just can't read it yet in my book. Um, similar anxieties about cheating, similar regulations. Although do keep in mind that Ireland was an English colony. And so that or parts of Ireland, I should say, were an English colony. Um, so that's kind of where that might come in. Um, but yeah, so there, there's definitely that anxiety in other places. And my, my research primarily is in Ireland. And then um, because of the, the colonies that existed in Ireland by the English, I do a lot of comparison. And so I'm quite familiar with those two. But it certainly isn't just limited to England. Yeah. Yeah. We just have really good documentation for a lot of it. So it, it mm. makes it easier to find some of it, which is not to say, again, it, it's not elsewhere. It's just, you know, got to go dig it up. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. The, the documentation in England is really good and it's it's good to work with, nice to work with. <laughs> yeah. Is it is it the case that churches are better at documenting and keeping things as well? 
Well, for example, the reason why the documentation is really difficult in Ireland is because there was a fire in 1922, 1922, and it burned most of the medieval records and a lot of the records. And and there's a lot of there's a lot to the fire. It's it's quite a political event. And and it's uh, something that um, we're all still very, very angry about. And by we, I mean, historians and literally anyone who's interested in Irish history because it destroyed so, 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 so much of what we had. Um, and we have to we have much less primary sources to work with than other other countries and other places. And so it's not even in a, a case of like who is making the documentation as much as who has preserved it and how have they preserved it um, and what have they been doing to preserve it. Um, and if you know, if it was destroyed in like a world war or, you know, an attack or these sorts of things, because unfortunately, a lot of history is destroyed in fires or bombings and yeah and, and like putting that. on my my ex-archivist hat a lot of those church documents may be somewhere but they're not necessarily arranged described they're almost certainly not digitized although they are in some places but there's again there's that i'm going to put a shout out for the invisible labor of archivists and librarians because until that stuff is done no one knows it's there so it may well be somewhere but until those other steps happen and until there's someone doing kind of long-term preservation whether that's physical or Uh, digital hopefully both people just may not know so it may just be something that is known on a local you know very like parish level but it may not be available to other researchers or or even just kind of interested people who want to know more so it's all about uh you got to pay these people so that's my my usual shout out pay librarians pay archivists so well, and things could also be in private collection that, that people don't want to cough up. They don't want other one to look at. So they're, they're sort of kept behind closed mm-hmm. doors. So there, there are things that, you know, I really wish that we had public access to that we just simply don't Definitely. because people won't allow access, um, which is frustrating. Yep. Um, or, or, you know, things from your country, which was colonized or, you know, has then been taken to the country that colonized you and has not been returned. Yep. And so then you want the want access to those materials, but they're not giving them back, even though they don't belong to them. <laughs> um, so that that's also very big problem within um, history and archaeology. Mm. Yeah, makes sense. Soapbox, soapbox. <laughs> but it's a good soapbox. Our soapbox is, is mighty. Is there anything more that we want to cover on alewives and hell or demons or evil or any of the associations? The only thing I would say is, I mean, just I, I, I it has the opposite effect on me as a modern viewer um, looking at these alewives in hell. It looks to be like where the party is and frankly, where I want to be, because it just seems so fun, um, which I'm sure is not the intention. Um, well, I know it's not the intention, although, you know, sometimes they were kind kind of sneaky about stuff and you know anyway the moral of the story is it looks fun absolutely in, in uh, w- worlds with the uh, worlds with endless ale and tiny cups and uh, and and people with cool hats i think this is great absolutely and i love the idea of going back and thinking about what these particular sort of medieval and early modern people who are like knocking people for putting this and that in their beer what they would think of like a milkshake ipa or a pastry stout like their minds would just Explode. Oh my god! I mean, exactly. But I mean, if we also just think about the resistance to hops, you know, yeah. the, the the changeover between various other herbs and, and and other additives to hops was also met with resistance. Can you imagine trying to sell lactose? 
<laughs> at this exactly. point. Like, and and can I just say, I love that people have been misunderstanding what hops do for this long. Like, you know, well done, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, this is this has been a misconception for hundreds of years that hops are somehow making your beer stronger. Okay, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Have fun. Well, and that that is a that is a thing that another little mini tangent that when you're looking at like historical documents, a lot of times you're talking about people writing the documents who have no clue about the brewing process. And you can tell that. And then, you know, some people are like, oh, this is how they brewed. And then, you know, people who have brewed beer are like, no, that is not how they brewed. This is someone who does not know what they're talking about and is just saying things about, you know, about ale, <laughs> um, which makes it really interesting because you're kind of going, did they do nope. that? And then you're like, wait, no, they didn't right. do that. That's not possible. Um, but it's yeah, it's really interesting that these sorts of misunderstandings have been, as Lisa said, have been going on forever. Um, oh, yeah, I find that fascinating. Love it. Okay, well, then, friends, I think that we're going to start start our wrapping up process here. Um, Christina. Where can people look for any more um, resources on this? How about uh, how about your website for one, and any yes. writings you've done? Yeah, so I I'll actually tweet this after this episode mm-hmm. comes out. I'll tweet uh, pictures and stuff the following week to talk about this, and, and so you can kind of visualize what I'm talking about. Um, so that's my website, which is Brachiatrix. Um, and yeah, I'll tweet about it. And all of my blog posts have a whole bunch of sources. So you can really kind of like dig into and dig into some of these primary sources and some of these um, historians who are experts in, in these sorts of things. Fantastic. Lisa, anything else there to add from your side? No, no, just the same. I'll make sure that some of these things are getting out on the socials so people can dig in further, find some of the primary sources and, and then make sure too that people can link to some of this really interesting research that's out there. So hopefully, you know, go, go hug a historian. carolyn anything last from you fab okay well then that's it everybody thanks for joining us for another episode of the beer ladies podcast we can be found on all the socials as you've just heard so twitter facebook instagram i think that's pretty much all of it and we're either a beer ladies pod or beer ladies podcast just search for us there and uh, go and visit christina's website at brachiatrix because um, there's lots of good stuff and you'll really enjoy um all of the all of the historical aspects of of women and beer and alewives and all the fun stuff Okay. All right, friends. Listen, spooky season. We're continuing spooky season next week. So um, I know, right? (laughs) For the rest of October, I think we've got spooky season episodes. So uh, yeah, tune in next week and find us wherever you get your pods or on YouTube. Thanks, everybody. Bye, friends. Bye. Bye, bye, bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 